And you are listening to Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and streaming worldwide at WERU.org. Stay tuned for Wabanaki Windows with your host, Donna Loring, coming up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, we'll be discussing a topic that's always fascinated me. Uh, We had a show on this a number of years ago, uh, but uh, I think that it's time to uh, talk about this again. And we're going to be talking about prophecies uh, and a very special event that will mark the fulfillment of one of these prophecies. My guest today is Sherry Mitchell, Penobscot Nation member, uh, Indigenous rights attorney, and the founder of the Land Peace Foundation. Uh, Sherry, welcome to the show. Thanks, Donna. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for showing up, because you're going to get grilled today. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Good. Um, Okay, so there's quite a few, uh, for some background, we'll just lay some foundation on this. And uh, for some background, there's quite a few uh, Native prophecies that are out there. Um, And I know you've looked at some of these, and I'm wondering what you can tell us about them. Well, there are several prophecies that are uh, active, I guess is the best way to say it at the moment. Um, We have the Hopi Rainbow Warrior Prophecy, which many people have heard about, and there's a lot of information about it out online, which talks about a time when um, all the people of the earth from all different directions, from all of the sacred colors, uh, would rise up together in protection of the earth. We're seeing that happening now. People from all over the earth are rising up to protect life from the destruction that human beings are waging against Mother Earth and against all life. There's also the Anishinaabe Seventh Fire Prophecy, um, which talks about coming to a time where we will have to choose between two paths. One of those paths leads to life. The other leads to destruction. There's the Mohawk Seventh Generation Prophecy that talks about um, a time when there would be very clear signs that the earth was sick and dying and that we would recognize this time by the elm trees um, dying from the top down, animals beginning to disappear, which we're seeing, waters would burn and become unsafe to drink, which we're also seeing, Uh, the air would burn our eyes, and Mother Earth would develop a fever, which is global warming. And um, great monsters would cover the earth and dig up the ground, which is what we're seeing with all of these uh, fossil fuel industry and other industrial practices going on around the world. Um, and so in all of these prophecies, they, they essentially say the same thing, that the, the real people of the earth will rise up. In the Mohawk prophecy, it's the Anquahonwe uh, people who are the real people um, and demand that their wisdom connected to living in harmony with life uh, be respected, be honored, and be put back into practice so that the earth and our right to live here would be fully restored. And, um, you know, all of these prophecies talk about seventh generations. 
And so we also have a prophecy here uh, in Wabanaki territory, the prophecy of the Eastern Door. In that prophecy, it talks about during the time when the people of the earth rise up in protection of life, that it's going to be necessary for them to travel back to the place of first contact, which is here in the East, to heal the common wounds that we all share from our history of violence, that it was here in the East where um, the first blood was spilled, where the seed for the relationship that would unfold here was planted. And so in order for us to really be able to unify our movements going forward, we have to actually heal that common wound that we share um, and, uh, you know, dig up that seed, heal that seed, renew our sacred contracts with one another as human beings and choose a new path forward. And all of the prophecies that, um, that we're talking about talk about choice, talk about us coming to this time of choice where we have to choose our path. There's a in addition to the Rainbow Warrior prophecy from the Hopi, there's a Hopi map of life, which talks about coming to two paths. The Anishinaabe Seventh Fire prophecy talks about choosing between two paths. Um, you know, so we're we're all at this point of choice right now, where all of these things are are coming to fruition. You uh, <clears throat> you mentioned the Eastern Door prophecy. I sort of. Did a little research um, on that, and there seems to be a couple of those. Um, so I, I think the uh, the Mohawks have one, mm-hmm. um, and then you said that we have one as well. Mm-hmm. Do you know anything about the Mohawk uh, prophecy? Or uh, when I first um, learned of this uh, Eastern Door prophecy in this region. I actually heard about it from uh, a Mohawk elder, uh, Tom Porter. And uh, I was talking to him about um, a dream that I had had. And he told me that um, that dream actually corresponded to that Eastern Door prophecy that um, our people uh, share. Um, and he didn't tell me the story of the Mohawk Eastern Door prophecy. He just told me that our people shared um, these prophecies about the the opening, the reopening of the Eastern Door um, and told me how my dream corresponded to that. And then when I... Um, talked about it at a confederacy, Wabanaki confederacy gathering. The clan mothers there said the exact same thing, that, you know, it was corresponding to the prophecy of the Eastern Door. So I'd be interested to hear um, what information you have on the Eastern Door prophecy from the Mohawk. Um, I know that there's um, shared responsibility between our peoples to uh, keep the Eastern Door. The Eastern Door is a spiritual gateway. And we're here in the Northeast, and we've um, talked about sharing that responsibility for keeping the Eastern Door. In fact, when I've been at elders' gatherings um, with representatives from the Iroquois Haudenosaunee, uh, the Wabanaki and Haudenosaunee are both stood up in the Eastern Door together. Um, We have peace accords between our people about what our responsibilities are in keeping that Eastern Door in in a peaceful way. And 
Um, so there's all of these correlations between our people and the Haudenosaunee people, um, which the Mohawk are a part of. And so it's a, it's a, it's a long history that predates the U.S. where we had actually found a way to come together as people. There's a wampum belts that illustrate the peace accords that were made between our people and those sacred agreements that we made with one another um, that outline what our responsibilities are and and were at that time and what they would be going forward. And part of that is, you know, maintaining um, that eastern door and, and maintaining our responsibilities for, for keeping that eastern door because the east is the direction of creation. It's the place where new beginnings originate. And all of our stories tell us that if we go through the eastern door and continue far enough to the east that we'll come to the place where the creator lives. And that this is the point from which all life enters into this universe is through that eastern door. The, uh, what I found in my, in my research uh, had to do with the, um, the UN. Um, and I one of the uh, one of the authors of a I think it's a Haudenosaunee author who wrote the uh, uh, Seven Council Fires prophecy. He's got a book. Um, I can't remember the name of the book. Um, I think it was um, Jake Swamp, who was at the UN and delivered an address, and Jake has passed now. He's one of the elders that I've had the honor of working with through the years. Um, but he also talked about these prophecies. And uh, there is a book out um, about the time in 1992 when all of the indigenous elders went to the UN and delivered an address. And it was part of that gathering when they all talked about the prophecies. The Hopis talked about their prophecies as well. Um, and um, the Onondaga were there, the Mohawk were there, and um, they were giving a warning to the people of the UN about the time that we were coming into and about the signs that were coming to fruition and what our responsibilities were during that time. And unfortunately, a lot of those words fell on deaf ears uh, because so many people are lost and are... Um, impacted and affected by this spiritual and mental illness that makes them believe that we're separate from the earth somehow and that we're separate from one another. And so, uh, you know, the, the time, again, is, is coming to renew um, our sacred contracts. You know, we have these sacred contracts that we made that enabled us to be able to live here in this beautiful place and to get everything that we need from the earth. And we've failed to meet our obligations under those sacred contracts um, to live in harmonious balance with Mother Earth and the rest of creation and to live uh, in a balanced way with one another and to honor one another as relatives. We've fallen out of step with that. And human beings are the only species that have fallen out of step with uh, the rest of creation. We're the ones that are creating all of the destruction. We're the ones that are causing the extinction of species and um, the destruction of ecosystems. And so we're the ones that really need to take responsibility for our own healing and for our way of being in relation to the rest of life. Yeah, the, uh, 
I just found uh, the the book I was referring to was uh, written by Edward Benton Benay B A N A I, and it was uh, copyrighted in 1979, and it was called Mishom the Mishomis book, mm-hmm. and uh, you'll find this uh, excerpt interestingly enough on the uh, Passamaquoddy uh, website where they talk about the, the seven fires prophecy. What's interesting is the title um, because in our language, um, Smol is, um, is grandfather and, and um, you know, Musun is heart. So the Musumul prophecy <laughs> or story is, uh, you know, it's uh, all about being connected to the heart. Um, and uh, it's you know that's that's the name of the the title of the book, and it's uh, and it's like semicolon. It says the voice of the Ojibwe. Uh, so and and I actually I have that book. Mm. It's uh, and uh, it's very it's in depth. It's very interesting, and it's uh, it's old. So that's probably yeah. that's the Anishinaabe Seventh Fire Prophecy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the other person that uh, on the Passamaquoddy site is a call, is the uh, the elder William Commander. Do you know who he is? Says uh, uh, and, and on their website, I'm just reading from their website. It says the following was asked to be read by Elder William Commander at the Aboriginal Learning Network uh, constituency meeting of elders policymakers and academics on April 16th and 17th, 1997, in Ulnar, Quebec. So they had a meeting in, in Ulnar, Quebec, and they talked about this uh, the seven uh, council fires and the prophecy as written in the, in, uh, the book by Edward Benton Benet. So We've had a lot of discussion, I remember, about... 27 years ago, um, going to my first elders gathering where there were spiritual elders from all over Turtle Island that were in attendance. And at these gatherings, they they bring out the prophecies and they talk about them. And they started talking about the signs um, that were connected to them. And that was, um, you know, we were still kind of at the beginning of of the unfolding of that time uh, 27 years ago where they were starting to see the trees dying from the top down. Um, They were starting to see some of the poisoned waterways and all of these things that um, the prophecies talked about from tribes from all over, not just the ones we've mentioned, um, were starting to come to fruition and there's been discussion of these things for a very long time. Every year the elders come together at these elder gatherings and talk about um, the new signs that are emerging within their prophecies and they compare their prophecies and and, and see where they align. And um, right now we're at a point where it's it's so clear that all of these prophecies are aligning, that they're active. And so um, my connection to this is is um, related to the to the dream that I had that I talked to right. to right. Tom and Porter and and Audrey Shenandoah right. about, right. and then to the Wabanaki clan mothers about. Yeah, um, that's uh, that's an amazing dream, and I'm going to get to that. 
But I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned about some of the things that are happening right now and how they've aligned with some of these prophecies. And you also said that the prophecies have lots of things in common. Mm-hmm. So can you think of a few examples of how those align? Well, uh, what they talk about, a lot of them is uh, they talk about how the sky will look. They talk about the um, specific species of trees um, and how they'll be affected. Um, there's, you know, prophecies that talk about the elm tree specifically and how they'll start dying from the top down. There are also stories about how the ash trees um, in this region will be impacted. We're starting to see those impacts with some of these pests that are coming in and killing the trees. Um, and what what these things symbolize, what these signs um, symbolize is imbalance with our ecosystems that are, are demonstrating that we're reaching a tipping point. And so, um, you know, these are spiritually connected events, but they are also uh, ecological events that can be tracked. Um, They talk about the destruction of the waters in specific ways um, in specific regions. So, um, you know, like the Mohawk talk about the destruction of their waters. The Hopi talk about the destruction of their waters uh, within their timelines. And so, you know, they can recognize, okay, here's where the specific vegetation, trees that we're talking about are specific vegetation within our regions are going to be impacted. That's going to be followed by the destruction of these particular waterways. Uh, that's going to be followed by um, the the digging up and the destruction of the earth. Then there's going to be the, dist- the um, disturbance of the bedrock, which we're seeing with hydrofracking, um, which destabilizes the core of the earth. Um, but also, you know, it's the first time in human history that we've taken water out of the water table through hydrofracking. The other one is... One of the prophecies that come to my mind is the uh, is Lakota about the black snake. Yeah, yeah. There's there's actually a couple of prophecies about the black snake. We also have um, I've heard the um, Wabanaki clan mothers talk about a prophecy about the black snake. And um, at first, when that prophecy first um, was told, people thought that it connected. Um, to trains, that the building of the railroads and the trains going across the land was the um, black snake and how it would go underneath the earth and through our waterways. Um, But now people realize that what they're actually talking about was the oil lines, um, oil and gas lines that are going through our waterways and across our land. If you look at a map of where oil and gas pipelines are right now, um, it's so um, heavily populated uh, within our country, even in Canada and other places, that you can't even see geographic markers on the map anymore because there are so many lines from these oil and gas pipelines. And they are going through our waterways. They are causing massive destruction. They are trying through like a sable trail pipeline down in florida Um, underneath florida the land is all honeycombed that's why they have these big uh, collapses 
of their uh, land. You know, they have these big sinkholes that open up and people's homes fall into it, entire communities fall into it because it's all honeycombed under there. They want to put a series of gas pipelines under the ground in Florida. Um, It's not a matter of if, but when there's some type of defect in those lines, um, that gas will go everywhere if it leaks. But if there's an explosion, they could sink the whole state of Florida. Uh, you know, I mean to laugh, but I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's just it's insanity. It's insanity. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the insanity. Look at what's happening in Oklahoma. Right. All of those earthquakes mm-hmm. from fracking. And there have been earthquakes now. Um, because once we distru- disturb that bedrock, I mean, it's one connected system. You can't escape the impacts. You have things that are happening in Fukushima, over in Fukushima with that nuclear power plant falling into the ocean. You have, um, they want to put uh, hydrofracking in New Brunswick where there are two nuclear power plants. Um, and so we've had all of this, uh, all of this, um, hydrofracking going on up in North Dakota as well and air, uh, some of those other areas. And so what's been happening in the last week is that there have been a series of earthquakes under that supervolcano out at Yellowstone. And so, you know, when we're disrupting the bedrock, when we're destroying our water, when we're creating all of these imbalances within our ecosystem, it impacts the entire creation. And so, you know, that's what these prophecies have, have told us about, they've warned us about. Um, but, you know, it's not just a story to be told. We also um, have an active role to play in the unfolding of these prophecies. Those stories weren't passed down just for us to uh, recognize that somebody knew something uh, right. long ago. Right. Um and we'll get to that too. Yeah. Um, I, you know, bringing it, bringing all this up, it just sort of people talk about climate change and, and its effects, and it just in this past week you were talking about things happening, and um, I heard something. I think it was uh, Greenland had a tsunami, which is unheard of. Right. Uh, you know, and you've got the ice cap uh, melting at at a very high rate now. Mm-hmm. Uh, all this, all of these things. And what's crazy is that people don't understand the science um, and the geological information connected to global warming and its impact. So we've had these uh, warming cycles throughout history that we can prove by pulling cores from uh, ice cores that show the changes in temperature. And we've actually had periods of warming historically that were greater than the warming period that we're seeing now, and science has shown that the warming actually precedes the elevation in carbon in the atmosphere. And so people are are saying, well, global warming doesn't exist. Uh, Climate change isn't real because we can show that it's, you know, historically happened. What they don't understand is that the greater the warming, the greater the amount of carbon that's in the air, the danger to us, in, in, addition, in addition to all of the things that warming causes in our environment, but the real danger to us is in the cooling period that follows these warming periods, so the ice age periods that follow, because the more carbon that there is in the air um, during those cooling periods, the longer it takes for the earth to warm again. 
And so, you know, there's there's so much that people uh, don't understand, but our ancestors understood these things because they had lived through these periods before. And so they're talking to us about how we need to adapt our lives in order to survive um, the changes that are coming. Um, and also to understand that our role in increasing the destruction of the earth, because we're not just dealing now with with warming and cooling. We're dealing with disruption of the bedrock, destruction of the waters, you know, destruction of all of these things that are required for us to sustain our lives here on Mother Earth. Right. You know, that sort of reminds me that in um, 1981, the, uh, I don't know if you know this, probably do, uh, (laughs) the uh, Dalai Lama came and visited uh, Hopi and talked to the uh, to the uh, the elders there about their their vision and basically said that a lot of uh, the Tibetan uh, visions and whatever were very similar to to Hopi and to native uh, native visions as mm-hmm. well. So then I, I came across that in my research and it there's a uh, a link to that meeting and I haven't followed that link yet but I'm going to. Because I think that's pretty fascinating that the Dalai Lama would actually come here and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, talk to the talk to the elders. Yeah. And so, in response to all of these prophecies and um, and at the prompting of the elders, um, we're going to be hosting a gathering here in this area um, because you know, as Wabanaki people, we're the people of the first light where the people of the dawnland and the keepers of that eastern gate that eastern doorway and so um watching the signs and seeing what's happening right now uh we were called to host this ceremony here and invite the people from all over the world to come and join us um, for this ceremony to heal that um, broken seed and to renew our sacred contracts with one another and with the rest of creation. And so we have um, a ceremony that's going to be coming up, and we're going to have an opportunity to talk to one of the hosts of that ceremony in a few minutes. Um, We have this ceremony that's going to be coming up where we're inviting people from all over the world to come and join us, and uh, we can go into more detail about the ceremony after we talk to our next guest. Um, But essentially, we're inviting people to come in to acknowledge that we all have been impacted by the history of violence that we have shared. Whether uh, we are the victims, the perpetrators, or the witness, it leaves an imprint on our spirit, and it impacts the way that we see one another. It actually obstructs our ability to come together in any type of unified way. And so when when we look at the correlation between, between these prophecies, that there's all of this talk about rising up um, and unifying for the protection of the earth. But the only way that we can truly unify is if we heal the wounds that exist between us that prevent us from truly coming together and seeing one another as relatives. And so our role in the unfolding of these prophecies is to help facilitate the healing between um, the peoples of the earth so that they can truly unite so that they can come together in a way that allows them to see one another in truth, to see one another's hearts, to um, to be able to unify in a way that makes us effective in addressing the challenges that we're 
that we're seeing. And so the, the ceremony is going to be hosted um, by Nabizan, which is a tribally owned cultural um, healing center in Pasadumkeg. And um, we're going to be talking with um, one of the founders of Nabizan here in a couple of minutes about um, their role in this ceremony. Uh, so it's um, it's interesting that when we got the directive from the elders to host the ceremony, uh, we set the date for it. They said it needs to be a year from now when they made the call, and uh, that was last summer. We set the date for this ceremony, and two months later, the stand at Standing Rock began, which was the fulfillment of the Crazy Horse Prophecy, uh, which said that in seven generations, the Lakota people would be seen as being uh, a beacon of how to move forward. And so, you know, all of these things are, are now coming into alignment. Right. Okay. Uh, we now have um, Dr. Ben Hurth on the line. Sherry, if you want to introduce him. Yeah. Welcome, Ben, to the show. Oh, thank you. And... Uh, Ben is one of the founders of Nabizan. Um, he is Winnebago and Lakota, and he has had the good sense to marry a Penobscot woman, and which brought him to um, our territory. And um, so, Ben, we wanted to talk to you a little bit today about Nabizan's role in uh, in hosting the Healing Turtle Island. Ceremony, but first, um, can you give our listeners a, an idea of of what Nabizan is? Yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, you know, first of all, I want to thank you for for a chance to to be able to talk about this. Um, it's been a project that's kind of been in the making for a couple of years now. Um, uh, it all it all kind of started uh, probably about two years. Um, a, a man by the name of Tim Shea um, and I were, were sort of talking about um, this idea of, of um, looking back to our culture and kind of um, finding healing through that. Um, there's a lot more verbiage behind that, but that's, but that's essentially what it, what it was about. And um, I just want to let our listeners know, too, that Tim Shea is a Penobscot tribal member, and he... Um, leads the ceremonies for the Native American church in our community. Right. Yeah, he and I have known each other now for over seven years. Um, and and uh, through ceremonies and through just time being spent with each other, we, we've had a lot of conversations about um, what we see in our own communities. Um, you know, and it started with the, the our, our Penobscot people. Um, you know, I, I work within the tribal clinic. Um, and have for almost seven years. Um, and so I, as a part of that, I, I, I've sort of seen the kind of the, the um, a snapshot um, in people's lives and the things that they deal with on a daily basis and families um, and some of the hardships among all, all the joys, you know, and um, even some of the, the personal and tribal histories um, that I've sort of learned in this time and and Tim, Tim and I are really talking about, like, you know, what, what can we do? You know, we're, we've got these ceremonies that we're doing, but is there something more? And um, and right about that time, um, this this place um, up in Pasadena, 
um, was was going up for sale, and it was initially uh, made as a as a equine uh, healing place, um, but that didn't quite go through. Um, and so, Suffolk University um, had inherited the uh, the property, and and they were they did well to to try to sustain it for a number of years, but they they couldn't sustain it anymore so they were looking to um to sell the place and it was uh sort of fortuitous that you know we we were looking for a place to call home and and they were looking for a place you know for somebody to take this place and um so in its origin it was actually um it was built with the idea of helping people and so when the time came um you know, here we are, we're, we're just a couple of guys, and we got a lot of people, including our families and uh, close friends and loved ones that um, that we all have this shared idea. Um, so Nabizan initially was, was called the Wabanaki Cultural Preservation Coalition, um, and the idea was <clears throat> to sort of look back to our roots, look back to the ceremonies that we, we, we still have um, to... To, and to look deeper into those that we, we no longer practice and to look deeper into uh, those types of um, ceremonies. And, and, um, and so it kind of came, came all together. Um, you know, we were this brand-new nonprofit um, organization. Uh, we had a really long name uh, to begin with. Um, and uh, since that time, we've, we've sort of um, uh, kind of called down our, our ideas and try to look deeper into into what exactly we're looking at and and the Beeson was really really born out of this idea of trying to um, heal both um, heal on multiple levels you know heal a person to healing a, uh, a people a community and then also you know looking looking to our um, at the time the, the standing rock our, our brothers and sisters out there in Standing Rock, and and it kind of became this really large idea, um, and so we we with uh, with very little in our pockets, we actually made an offer and was uh, were accepted into uh, buying this property. So um, Nabizan is really connected to healing and healing that is steeped in cultural tradition. Absolutely. Um, and so that kind of brings us back around to the subject of the show today, which is about the healing Turtle Island ceremony. And so um, can you kind of summarize for us what it, um, what it was that attracted Nabizan to the healing Turtle Island ceremony and why Nabizan is hosting that ceremony? Yeah, I, I think it was a, a natural fit in my mind. Um, you know, if when people have an opportunity to come up, they'll see the the, um, the place itself, and it's a beautiful place. It's, uh, it's about 85 acres of land right on the Penobscot. It's right across from Lemon Island, which is in, in um, old settlement of the Penobscot people. Um, it was actually a throughway for many years, um, and continues to be for people um, to go to Old Lemon for fiddleheading for you know, cultural practices, and at the time we were doing a lot of ceremonies up there, and it became kind of a, a really good place, um, a really meaningful place. And, and so when, when this idea of having, a, um, having the seed planted for, 
uh, the, the healing for the generations to come, um, it just seemed like a natural fit. Um, you know, we, we had this beautiful parcel of land with these facilities that are um, that could could hold a large number of people, and and it was right along um, our aspirations of trying to help more than just single people, but also helping communities, and uh, and even beyond that. And so um, it was it was a great fit uh, in my mind, and it was in, in my mind I, I think of it even as this is this the healing ceremony is one of the very reasons that we even created this place or one of the reasons that it was created for us i should say mm. and and so for me it, it's it was a it was a great fit okay well that was a lot of uh, important information uh, sherry if is there anything else you want to um ask dr ben or well i just uh you know want to thank you for for uh, joining us today to talk a little bit about this. Unfortunately, we don't have a ton of time to talk about it, but I also encourage people to look into Nibisin and look at um, what's available for for folks out there because, like um, Ben said, it is really a natural fit, and the way that it all came about was really interesting. Um, I hadn't hadn't even thought to ask Nibisin. We were going to hold it in the Penobscot um, community at Indian Island, and when I approached them about participating in the ceremony as ceremony keepers, um, they said, "Well, why don't you just have it at Nabizan?" And um, it's just an absolutely perfect location. And the way that it all came together is a long story, but it's a beautiful story. And and maybe we'll talk about that someday. But um, Nabizan is also doing really, really important work out there in regard to healing and the restoration of. Um, our cultural practices to heal trauma. And so, um, you know, the Healing Turtle Island ceremony is really about healing generational trauma that impacts us and prevents us from coming together. So it's really important that, um, you know, we've made this connection and come together in this way, which I think is more than fortuitous. To me, it feels like it was really um, part of the original plan. Um, yep. that this happened, that everything lined up so that the elders made the call for the ceremony to happen. They reacquired um, the the property out in Pasadumkeg, which had been previously owned by tribal people um, in, in, um, in an attempt to do some type of healing there. So the land has been intended for healing for a long time. It came back into their hands, you know, as the directive was being made, and then the ceremony was there. So it kind of like all lined up like... You know, when you're walking off a cliff and then the road just kind of forms before your eyes is kind of how how this all came together. And so can you just tell us before you go, Ben, um, what is the Nabizan website? Uh, we, we, the most accessible one is uh, nabizan.org. Uh, Nabizan is N-I-B-E-Z-U-N. Um, that's our website. We also have a Facebook, which is a little more active, um, and it's just a... Uh, Nabizan um, on Facebook. Okay, great. And hopefully, folks will look more into Nabizan and learn more about your about your project out there. And um, we'll come to the ceremony and get to know more about Nabizan. That would be okay. great. All right. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Sure. Thank you, Ben. Um, Sherry, now I think is a good time for uh, us to talk about uh, your your dream. Mm. Um, Tell me how that happened and 
Well, I've had this dream since I was, I started having it when I was about four years old. And I'm always the same age in the dream. I'm about 10 years old. I don't know if that's significant, but when I was four years old and I had the dream, I was 10 in the dream. When I was 40 years old and I had the dream, I was 10 in the dream. And so uh, in this dream, we're in this space uh, and all of the all of the elders are there. All of the people from our community are there. And um, there's a mound that's there. And in the center of the mound, there's a hole. Uh, and people are being lowered down into that hole. And down in the hole, there's tunnels that go in, in the four directions. And they're sending runners out. The elders are sending runners out in each direction and they come back bringing people with them so every day the crowd is growing bigger and bigger and bigger as people from all of these different directions are coming in people from all corners of the earth are coming in and they're they're bringing them back out and then one of the elders said to me uh, it's time for you to go down uh, we're going to lower you down now and so they lowered me down into the hole and they told me we want you to run to the east and so I, I ran to the east and I uh, remember, you know, being so excited because I thought I was going to come to some foreign land and be bringing these people back. But um, the, the tunnel dead ended and there was a grandmother sitting there holding a basket. And there was a seed in the basket that was about two or three times the size of a mango seed, of a mango, um, this big seed. And it had all of these cracks in it with this black tar-like substance oozing out of it. And uh, she handed me that basket and said, you need to bring this back up to them. And so I took the basket and I went and I brought it back up and the elders took the basket and they brought it over to um, this area where there was a sacred fire. And it was uh, on this grassy area along the edge of this uh, waterway. And um, all of the people were in circles around the elders going out there were so many people that were there that it was going out as far as you could see. There were rings of people that were there. And the elders started to pray, and all the people started to join those prayers. And this uh, hole opened up in the sky like a portal, and this light started to shine through that. And um, that light hit that seed, and that black tar started bubbling up and eventually it dried up and it flaked off. And underneath it, you could see that there were all of these cuts in that seed, like a cut into human flesh, and they were bleeding. And as the people were praying, the blood eventually stopped, and that wounds and that seed started to close up. Uh, and the people just kept praying, and that light kept shining on that seed until it was healthy and whole-looking and vibrant-looking. And then the elders put that... Uh, seed back into the basket and they told me you could bring that back down to the grandmother and so they lowered me back down and I brought it back down to the grandmother and while I had been up above she had already dug a hole um, in the earth to prepare for the return of that seed and she took the seed and she put it into the ground and covered it back up and put water on it and it began to sprout immediately and so that was the entire dream and uh, I've had that dream for 43 years. And so when I was in my early 20s, I, I first told um, uh, Mohawk elder Tom Porter about that. Uh, Audrey Shenandoah was also there. We were at an elders gathering out west, and we were just sitting around the fire in the evening talking, and, and that's when uh, Tom Porter first told me, well, that's connected to that 
um, prophecy of the Eastern Door, that we have to heal those original relationships. And uh, that's that opening of the Eastern Gate. When the Eastern Gate opens, it will offer us a new opportunity for creating a new way of life with one another. And so I I then uh, got excited and said, well, great, when are you going to have this uh, ceremony to open the Eastern Door? And he said, well, they'll tell us when it's time. And so then about 10 years later, I was at a Wabanaki Confederacy gathering, and I um, was telling the clan mothers in ceremony about that dream. And, and they said, well, that's, you know, about that prophecy of the Eastern Door. And I said, well, you know, we're the keepers of the Eastern Door. When are you going to hold that ceremony to uh, bring about this healing? We really need it. And they said, well, you know, the ancestors and uh, spirits will tell us when it's time for that ceremony to come about. And so uh, then I had one of the elders tell me uh, later that, you know, sometimes our our only role is to keep the story so that it can be passed on to the next generation about what needs to happen. And so maybe, you know, this dream is coming to you because you're meant to keep that story. And so I kind of accepted that that was going to be my role, was to just, you know, keep the story and keep telling the story and passing it on so that it could be... um, passed on so that people would know what to do when the time came. Then last May, I got a call from some of the clan mothers, and they said, you know, it's time. We've we've gotten messages. It's time for um, that ceremony to take place, and so it needs to be a year from now. So we scheduled the ceremony, and um, within two months after we scheduled the ceremony, the stand at Standing Rock happened, which was the fulfillment, like I said, of that crazy horse prophecy uh, Crazy Horse was actually with Sitting Bull in ceremony, and he had this vision that in seven generations, um, the children of the white man would come to the Lakota people and would seek uh, their wisdom and would come to them to um, get the teachings on how to live once again in harmony with the earth, um, how to reconnect themselves to the web of life, And what we saw at Standing Rock was a fulfillment of that prophecy. We saw young people from all walks of life, from every um, different background, from, um, you know, uh, different races and religions from all over the world coming to the Lakota people to stand with them in a peaceful, prayerful way for the protection of life, to learn from them. And uh, then we had the election, and so many other things have unfolded in regard to rolling back protections that have been put in place to secure life here on Mother Earth. And um, so when we look at all of the violence that's erupted around the world, even in the last year, um, it's really clear that this is the time for that ceremony. And if we look at all of the uprisings that are occurring and we think about what that Eastern Door prophecy tells us, that at the time when these uprisings are happening, you have to go back to the place of first contact and renew your sacred agreements with one another. And so it's been incredibly humbling for me to be a part of this process. Uh, When we were out at Nabizan over the winter and we were staking out the place where the ceremony was going to be, you know, everything was frozen and there was a lot of snow. We were walking in snow up to our thighs, trying to plan out where everything was going to be. We came back after the snow melted and we were actually staking the ground and, and measuring everything out. And um, I turned around when we decided where the sacred fire was going to be. And I looked up 
and um, just burst into tears because that place where that fire is going to be is exactly the place I saw in my dream. And so, um, you know, there's also other dreams that correspond to a medicine man coming to O'Lemon Island, which is right there where that ceremony is going to be. And so it's been just this incredibly powerful process um, for everybody that's been involved in this. And we have, um, you know, spiritual leaders that are coming from from all over the world. Um, Chief Orville Looking Horse, who is a um, 19th generation keeper of the sacred white buffalo calf pipe for the Lakota, Nakota, and Dakota people, is going to be joining us to open the ceremony. Um, Chief Bobby C. Billy, who is a uh, spiritual keeper for the original Miccosukee Seminole people who still live in Big, Big Cypress and the Everglades and Chicky Huts live traditionally, have kept all their practices. He's going to be joining us. Um, we have uh, spiritual leaders that are going to be joining us from tribes all over the United States, First Nations communities throughout Canada. The Maori people are going to be coming from New Zealand. We have representatives joining us from Africa. We have um, people that are going to be coming from Central and South America. We have people from uh, other populations that have experienced their own trauma, like people who come from Germany and people who are Jewish, um, who experienced their own trauma and tragedy together. Um, all of these people are coming together in this place for this ceremony to face one another, to um, share this common intention, this common dream of healing so that we can truly unite our uh, movements, so that we can deal with the wounding that we have. And, um, you know, there have been some people that say, we can't heal because the wounding hasn't stopped. Um, and I disagree with that. I think that we can heal because uh, once we heal, we're able to see our path forward more clearly. If we don't heal, we're always going to see through the eyes of our wounds, which is going to keep us repeating these cycles. But if we do the healing work that we need to do, it's going to clarify our vision. It's going to purify our hearts. It's going to give us the ability to see and to feel our way forward in a way that we haven't been able to do for generations because, you know, our path has been has been steeped in blood, you know. And if we want to be able to heal those wounds, um, then we have to come together eye to eye, breath to breath, heart to heart, and sit with one another and acknowledge that we're all wounded, you know, and that we all need to uh, have some healing. Even those who come from an oppressor population, they carry a deep wound. You can't, um, you can't behave in that way without it hurting your spirit. And so, you know, all of this healing is required, and it, it causes us... Um, to come up against uh, our own stuff, you know, it, it requires us to let go of our need to be the holder of the biggest wound, you know, to wear the crown for the biggest wound. We have to be willing to lay that down and say, you know, we're all related. All of our stories tell us that we're part of one web of life, that we're all um, relatives. Uh, this idea of oneness is more than a theory, you know. It's a, it's a, it's a scientific fact. It's a spiritual fact. Um, and if we want to truly heal, then we have to let go of our attachment to our own wounds. So, Sherry, this uh, it's a ceremony, right? Yes. So what does that ceremony, in a general uh, fashion, what does that consist of? Well, we're going to have um, 
all of these spiritual leaders are going to be leading us in prayer. There's going to be a number of different ceremonies. Um, the first day of the ceremony is going to be about healing the wounds that the human beings carry, renewing our uh, sacred contracts with one another, and uh, you know, healing the trauma that we carry between us. And so um, the elders that are coming in, they're going to know what it is that they need to do. There's no real definite parameter for, you know, we're not telling them, this is what you need to do. Right. We trust that their spiritual guidance is going to lead them to the ceremony that's most needed. So um, we're just, you know, bringing in the people who um, are the spirit keepers for their own people to come in and to lead those ceremonies for us. The second day is going to be about healing our relationship with the rest of creation and healing the wounds that are held by Mother Earth. Uh, not only does she carry all the blood that we've spilled, but she also has been suffering all of the destruction that we have caused, uh, the violations against her body. And so um, we'll begin that day with water ceremonies, um, which will be led by the women. And then we'll, because um, there's waterway right there um, on site, and uh, then we will uh, move to other uh, ceremonies that are geared toward healing Mother Earth. On the third day, we're going to be healing the electromagnetic field that surrounds the Earth because that energetic field holds all the imprints of all of the pain and destruction that we've um, been involved in that we've caused. And so we need to take responsibility for healing that because it holds it in place. Um, and if we want to be able to have, you know, it's just like we have to heal our mind, body, and spirit. We have to heal, you know, the, the minds and hearts of human beings. We have to heal Mother Earth. We have to also heal, um, you know, that energetic field around the Earth so that, that healing can, um, can carry. And then on the fourth day, we're just going to have closing ceremony, and we're going to give everybody a, a, a small gift um, of some uh, spirit medicines to take back to their homeland so that they can put that on the ground where they come from and, and carry the healing energy from the ceremony to the place where they're from, the place where they live, so that um, that will carry. And so it's um, this whole process has taken on a life of its own. Um, and, um, you know, we're... Uh, we're all actually really excited, all the people. There's a, lot, there's a lot of volunteers that have been helping. There's a ton of work to do and a lot of resources that are needed to pull this off because we're expecting a lot of people to come. In addition to those who have been invited, uh, been invited it's open to everybody. I was going to ask you that. Yeah, it's yeah. open to everybody. Um, and we have site uh, space on site for a lot of people to camp and we're opening up that space for those who want to come and camp on site and be there. Um, and that's on a first-come, first-serve basis. There's also hotels in Milford and Orono, and there's places that people can rent in Lincoln um, to be close to the site if they don't want to camp. Um, but, you know, we're expecting uh, we have about 1,500 to 1,600 people who have... Um, expressed an interest in coming. We don't know how many of those people will actually show up. And that's just on Facebook. And then we have um, entire groups of people that we know are coming from different places that are bringing, you know, a contingent with them um, to the ceremony. So um, we're expecting that it's going to be quite large. Yeah. So um, there's certain uh, 
things you would like people to observe before they come to the ceremony? Yeah, I mean, we ask people to come to the ceremony with a clear mind and a clear heart, which means that, um, you know, we request that people not uh, do any drugs or alcohol um, at least four days before the ceremony, and um, with the exception of those that are needed for um, health-related reasons that are prescribed. And, um, you know, we want people to know that this is not a festival. This is not a powwow. Um, this is not a protest. This is a ceremony. So um, they can't come expecting to, uh, you know, uh, give voice to some platform. Um, there, you know, we're asking people to come with a heart that's intent on healing, with, um, you know, a mind that's focused on 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 ceremony and on spirit, and, um, you know, to come in a good in a good way. Uh, we're also asking people to, um, we're going to provide two meals a day. We're going to provide lunch and, and dinner. Uh, the dinner will be a part of the ceremony, actually. The, the clo- it'll be a feast at the end of the day to ground people after all the ceremony. Um, but people are going to need to, you know, take care of their, <clears throat> excuse me, their own breakfast and snacks. Um, we're asking people to bring refillable water containers. We don't want any bottled water on site. Um, we are also asking people to bring um, their own, um, you know, plate, bowl, fork, spoon, um, so that we don't have uh, waste that's being thrown away. We don't want to contribute to... Before you finish, yeah, we're, we're getting low on time here. Okay. So tell us when this takes place and where. Okay. Uh, it's going to take place July 14th through the 17th at Nabizan, which is in Pasadumkeg on Route 2. There will be signs that will be put up if you go to the Nabizan website or you can go to our website for the gathering. We have a website for the gathering, which is healingturtleisland.org. Um, the actual address for Nabizan is on there. And we'll be continuing to update that page and posting more information. There's also a list of things that we need for the ceremony um, on that on that web page. There's a Facebook event page um, for it as well. Yeah, and I want to add that uh, this show will be archived, and um, lots of information will be uh, on on that archive site uh, when we we post about what the show is about, and then where you can find more information. It'll be up there on the weru dot org dot uh, org site. So the books and whatever other sites or information we want people to know will be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. uh, so we want everybody to come and, and want everybody to know that they're invited. So, Okay, that's everybody. Everybody. Everybody who wants to come, you're all invited to this. Uh, so um, I want to thank you uh, for joining us. I'm your host, Donna Loring. You've been listening to Abenaki Windows. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, track called Little Eagles. Um, I want to thank my guest, Sherry Mitchell, member of the Penobscot Nation, Indigenous Rights Attorney, Director of the Land Peace Foundation. And I'd like to say, uh, please join us uh, for another uh, Webinaki Windows uh, next month.
this is Dr. John Hunt for Pet Sounds 2.0, coming to you at 10 a.m. every fourth Thursday of the month. This will be a live call.